Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gashburnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. Hello and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and together with my friend, the journalist Aaron Gash Burnett, who specializes in German politics, we'll be looking at the world from Germany and looking at how Germany is seen around the world. And today we're here for a special bonus episode of the podcast. And we hope you're enjoying the season so far, everyone, uh, where we've talked about Germany's evolving outlook and foreign and security policy discussion, rethinking German defense uh, very importantly, and finally, the event and relationship that started this whole discussion off with Ben and I deciding to uh, start up this podcast in the first place, and that is a, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Germany's response to it, and the relationship between Germany and Ukraine both now and after the war coming up. Just a note for our listeners, if you haven't listened to our episode on Ukraine yet, a lot of the themes covered in today's bonus episode are introduced there, so we do encourage you to check it out. Uh, so Ben, you had a special guest drop by the Seitenwende team at the council to chat with you and our wonderful action group Seitenwende project assistants, Janik Hartmann and Julian Stockler. Who is your guest and what did you discuss? Thanks, Aaron. We were delighted to be joined by Stepan Rusin from the Transatlantic Dialogue Center, which is a think tank in Kiev. And Stepan uh, has been a regular visitor here to Degiape since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine and has provided us with invaluable insight and the perspective from Kiev and from how Ukrainians are actually looking at this. And Stepan's done a lot of work also with German politicians, with German influencers and experts in order to make sure they understand the picture as it's seen from Kiev. Well, let's lesson in. Stepan, welcome to Berlin. Welcome to DGAP. Thank you very much, Ben. It's great to see you again. We've been talking a lot over the last year and a half about the war and about what Germany is or isn't doing. A lot of people in Germany here are focusing and following closely the progress of Ukraine's offensive. And of course, we've seen a lot of criticism that it's going slowly. But we've also seen a lot of expert responses to this explaining why it's going slowly, because Ukraine hasn't been given what it needs to actually break through what are really entrenched Russian defenses. How are people in Ukraine feeling about the progress of the offensive and also about the outlook for the war now? People in Ukraine are now mostly ready that it is going to take longer than expected, than what was stipulated in the statement by the Ukrainian military leadership and uh, state leadership. Uh, if we look at the sociology, it's still 80% of Ukrainians who want uh, the war to continue till the liberation of all the territories and the full restoration of the national sovereignty. And uh, this number is unchanging since, I think, summer last year. And uh, it's, it's a good uh, ground for Ukrainian government or speaking to Western partners in particular, that we are not going to stop at this point and ask for negotiations because that's the will of the majority of the people. And obviously all in Ukraine understand that it's not ending with the Ukrainian victory, then we are going just to lose the country in the long term. Given that without security guarantees, without the prospect of future and uh, possibility of economic growth, there will be just no 
sense for people to live in Ukraine. And uh, if we now have the situation with closed borders for men, there are a lot of women with children already settled in Europe. And if this is not going to end decisively, then it will be quite a clear answer for those men who stop serving in the military where they should continue their life, either with their families in the West or they see the perspectives and the bright future in Ukraine, in security and prosperity. And then they start rebuilding their lives in Ukraine. So from our perspective, there is no other way. So we either win it now or if we are not winning, it's some kind of negotiation, ceasefire, stopping the war. And then in 10 years, the repeat of what we have gone through, there is no way to for Ukrainian state to survive. It's a point that I don't think many in Germany and around Europe have realized sufficiently that Ukrainians are still so committed to victory and only victory will do because even if Russia doesn't lose decisively, it could still win the peace and Ukraine could lose that peace. And so this idea that Ukraine would be condemned to a miserable future by such a negotiated settlement that didn't offer long-term security is something that Western security thinking actually needs to take into account, a durable peace as well as a just peace. Julian, I know you have a question on that. Go ahead. You've written about Germany's Zeitenwende from a Ukrainian perspective back in May. So let me ask you, why do you think Germany doesn't support Ukrainian victory? And how do Ukrainians feel about that? It's uh, a very big question because it's, first of all, difficult to talk about all Germans. There is millions of Ukrainian refugees in, U in Germany that are very strongly supported by the local population. We have really hard welcoming here. And the issue, not a problem here, I think, is the pacifism of the German society and that people in Germany do not want to have anything with war. Even if it means defending against the aggressor, it also implies killing the aggressor. And that's bad for Germany. And uh, it's, I think, a lot of psychological and historical memory thing. And it is very difficult to change as well. So it's something that for Ukrainians have to be taken in mind when communicating with Germany. But again, it's not giving us a big space for maneuver. And on the other side, even having this in mind, uh, we see that after the government announced some deliveries of weapons to Ukraine, artillery, Panzerhaubitz, uh, Leopard 2. Again, uh, it's in a month, in a week after th those decisions, there was a majority, relative majority of Germans who supported this. So I see that uh, German society actually understands what this war is about and they are committed to helping Ukraine and creating a new picture of the future Ukrainian victory and how German future is a big assignment for Ukrainians. That's so important, Stepan, what you just mentioned there, because it seems to me exactly Ger the German society is looking for reassurance from their leaders to overcome those fears and those historical hang-ups. And that leadership has only been forthcoming at certain moments, and it's in short supply when it's most needed often. It's not there in sufficient quantity or consistently enough to overcome what are still some of those psychological hurdles, which is why we find ourselves having the same discussion about practically every weapon system that gets sent. I mean, it feels like Groundhog Day sometimes dealing with the political debate here in that regard. So that would really make a case that German leaders, if they do get behind Ukrainian victory, could probably take the German people with them and exactly show why sometimes you need to fight a war to defeat genocide or to defeat a dictator or an expansionary fascist state. So Stepan, 
What is it then you think that some Germans are still afraid of? You've said that this, you know, an enduring, secure peace is needed for Ukraine's future. I would argue it's also in Europe's interest, in Europe's future interest to have that, not to have Russia coming back in another 10 years for another go and this creating the same kind of disruption that has led German politicians to say they need a Zeitenwender, a sea change. Why is it that some people still don't get that? Germany is enjoying security from 1945, actually. And it's not in the minds of people here that there can be any threat and that the war in Europe is real if we are speaking Europe as Central and Western Europe. And that's also, I think, a bit of mistake. It's good to for maybe average Germans just to watch some uh, Russian TV shows where they are constantly speaking that we can repeat uh, the take the capture of Berlin, that we can kind of destroy all NATO. And for, for Russians, for Russian reality, the war is not something that is impossible. And there is no this understanding in Germany that we live now in the situation where everything is possible. And I would not be that sure that, for example, if Russia is losing ground in Ukraine, they would not create or come up with some crazy idea to on targeting maybe, I don't know, some infrastructure in NATO countries or uh, some other type of hybrid, as they call it, uh, warfare. So one cannot be in full security. And that's the lessons of uh, what's happening in Ukraine from 2022. Do you think also that some Germans, also people probably across Europe, whether they're average people or politicians, are afraid of Russia's collapse in the case of a Russian defeat? I first of all think that it's a very good excuse not to do enough for the victory of Ukraine, but I also think that it's the case. Uh, Ukraine's victory not necessarily will lead to the collapse of Russia and all the possible insecurities that are connected, connected with it, but it may. And uh, there is no any kind of contingency plan in any of the Western think tanks or governments what is going to be done in case it happens. Because it's very difficult or even maybe impossible to prevent it. So the Russia is living its own political life. And thanks to policies of the Putin government, it's very isolated. So the West does not have any instruments to kind of be part of what's going to unfold in case the collapse happens. So uh, it, you can only prepare for it and be ready for it, but you cannot prevent it. And I think in this case, there should be understanding that the victory of Ukraine is more far-reaching for European securities at that possible threat of the Russian collapse. Exactly. This is what strikes me as quite absurd about this argument being used, as you rightly put it, as an excuse, is that we've seen with certainty what Russia does and the damage it causes. Yet some are still willing to put a higher premium and a higher priority on a very uncertain possible outcome, which, I mean, let's be clear, the end of Vladimir Putin would not necessarily mean the end of Putinism. It would not mean the end of the Russian imperial state. It would likely not mean the end of authoritarianism in Russia. There were a series of steps one would have to go through to get to the kind of state collapse, which is this scenario often used to justify cautiousness in that regard. So I think that's a failure of judgment on part of a lot of 
analysts as well as a lot of uh, experts and political figures. But it's also interesting to see who doesn't fear that. The Central East European countries don't seem to be concerned about that. And I don't think that should be dismissed as Russophobia or just a desire to do harm to Russia. These are the countries that have consistently got Russia right. And we should perhaps be listening a bit more to them in this regard. Another common reason, or let's call it what it is, an excuse that's often given in German public debate as to why not to support Ukraine more comprehensively, why not to give it what it needs to win and win at the lowest human cost and as fast as possible, is fear of escalation. But Stepan, where could Russia escalate to? And really, we've already seen every red line crossed, haven't we? I think so. I also cannot imagine what where else uh, Russia can escalate besides the use of nuclear weapons. And again, we need to take into account that for Russia, nuclear weapons are first of all a great power instrument of deterrence against attacks on the Russian uh, territory. And Ukraine has already shown that Russia is not actually following very strictly its nuclear doctrine as parts of nuclear deterrence forces are strategic bombers that carry nuclear weapons. And Ukraine has already targeted a few of them and even destroyed them in the airports uh, where they were based. So there was no nuclear retaliation from Russia to Ukraine for that. And it was only Uh, reports in the media that Russia successfully shot down all the drones and rockets. So uh, I'm not sure that Russia is ready to actually acknowledge that it's uh, uh, one of the most important military objects have been targeted. And actually, if to acknowledge it is already a problem for Russian regime. To retaliate for it is also a big step to do. So again, Russia is revealed as a paper tiger, all boasting, all mouth, and with nothing to actually back it up. And I think the strikes you're referring to were at the Engels uh, Air Force Base, at the Pskov Base, and in Kursk, which indeed carry strategic bombers. And we've seen the images from many of those attacks that were quite successful, considering everything was shot down in advance. Uh, There was (laughs) widespread damage and destruction. So very interesting that, again, it seems as though Russia is making false claims that are designed more to target Western public opinion than anything to do with their actual capabilities or willingness to to use the weapons they have. But they're quite successful in influencing public opinion in the West, so... That's it. And it's not, I mean, the fear is there. It's not really the fear, it's what you do with it that counts. And that's, again, what the Central Eastern European countries, I think, have shown how you deal with that. You face down the bully, in that sense, knowing that you are safe in actually an environment which you are have effective deterrence against all options Russia has. Stepan, let me ask you something about um, gratitude. It's a word we've heard a lot about, particularly since uh, the Vilnius NATO summit. And it's something that President Zelensky has gone out of his way to express his gratitude for what has been provided to Ukraine. How do Ukrainians feel about this discourse? This actually generated a lot of memes in Ukrainian social media, kind of Please tell us what we have to do and we will do it every morning, every lunchtime or every evening. So we can call whoever you tell us, you, we, we can say thank you a million times. So just tell us what you want and we will do it. But uh, seriously speaking, um, it's uh, also a twofold issue. On one side, we have really strong uh, sense of gratitude among ordinary Ukrainians. So that there is no any kind of criticism that West, is trying to kill us or whatsoever. It's more about uh, Ukrainians that are currently being killed for which on one hand is Ukrainian independence and statehood. On the other hand, it's also the world's rule-based order. 
which is in the interest not only of Ukraine, but of a larger international community, not only the West, but I believe of the world as a whole. So here, Ukrainians also feel that there are this big casualties that we are now taking. It also has to be kind of taken into account in the world, because for West, it's some percents of GDP, which is often incomparable with other Uh, expenses. Like in Germany, it was an immense amount given to mitigate the energy crisis, which is like 10 times bigger than what Germany given to Ukraine. Is Speaking of the United States, it's also just a fraction of their military budget. And in Ukraine, we are paying with lives, with thousands of lives of what had to be the future of Ukraine. So Ukraine is really grateful to Western partners, but it also expects some kind of recognition of our loss as well. And uh, there may be the remaining issue here is the style of communication of Ukrainian government, which is sometimes more demanding, sometimes more saying thank you. But uh, it's again, it proved to be working for, for the Ukraine. So this harsh hardline policy from Ukraine also has its own history of success. And we cannot expect that the Ukrainian government would also always just say thank you, thank you, and would not ask for something in return or would even demand something. Absolutely. I think this is a really interesting demonstration of how you calculate your interest and go about pursuing it. And in this case, also, Ukraine's interests are highly aligned with the interests of the democratic world, as you rightly put it. And even, I think I think you were very generous when saying gratitude's a two-way street and it should run both ways. I think actually our gratitude should be to Ukrainians who have stood at the front line and taken the ultimate sacrifice for what are ultimately the values all of our democratic states claim to want to stand up for. And as President Zelensky put it when talking at the US Congress last year, this is about the kind of future that we want. Is this a democratic future or not? What world will our grandchildren live in? And that's the gratitude we should be paying to Ukrainians. But from my point of view, and having worked on EU-Ukraine relations for a long time, it seems as though part of this is about reasserting that old hierarchy about who is right, who is better, who gets to give, who gets to receive. And I think that's a really false narrative that we're working on here that undermines actually the West's own interests and the democratic world's interests as such. I mean, let's be clear, this is not charity, this is an investment. And it's a very good investment. If we think about the US, degrading your major, one of your major great power rivals militaries for 3% of your GDP, 3% of your defense budget each year is a terrific investment at very low cost, actually, in terms of no US lives being put on the line. So I think we have to change that narrative. But it's amazing to hear Ukrainians respond with humor again to these terrible situations you're in. And I think that's something that everyone's also learned from Ukraine in the last year and a half. So... Stepan, it's not only about Germany looking at Ukraine, it's also about Ukraine looking at Germany. And this is something you've written on, and we have a link to the, the piece in, uh, in our show notes that everyone can read. How do you see the Titan vendor now? Over this year and a half, uh, basically, if we look in, at the starting point, which at that time was Germany pushing for the launch of Nord Stream 2, for more economic cooperation with Russia because it's in the interest of Germany. Then very slow start with helmets that were also subject of a lot of memes in, in Ukraine. And where, where we are standing now, it's really great progress even in the eyes of Ukrainians. It's close to the United Kingdom, which 
is one of the also leaders in the public opinion due to its quick decisions and being the pioneer in giving us new types of weapons. And that's what Ukrainian society really appreciates and remembers. And with Germany, it's also the main factor influencing it. It's not welcoming refugees, although it's an important factor. It's not economic uh, assistance. The main factor in positive attitude, which was measured actually by Ukrainian sociologists, it's weapons delivery. So Ukrainians see the, the best allies are those countries that give us weapons. Sure, I mean, Ukraine has a war to win, but it doesn't seem as though Germany gets that that's still a war to win. And so I wonder, would that popularity be sustained if it's seen that Germany is pushing Ukraine to negotiate or not giving the weapons to win, but just not to lose. Does that run a risk for Germany of affecting how it's viewed in Ukraine? Yes, I think it's important in this process to keep up with others. So for Germany, I think it is the policy just to keep up and not to be a leader. But speaking of security issues, economic issues... It's in bigger interest of Europe to end this war with Ukraine's victories. And for example, it's the interest of the United States, which are across the ocean. And it's one of the big headaches. If It's only one off. And for Europe, it's the main one. So I think Germany in this case should show leadership and be at the forefront of helping Ukraine. Speaking of keeping up, in this case with the British and the French, there's been a lot of debate here about the provision of cruise missiles. And I know my colleague Yannick Hartmann has a question for you about that. Yeah, so the Taurus debate has been indeed very decisive here in Germany. So for, for those that don't know, Taurus are cruise missiles basically that can hit targets 500 kilometers away in the distance far away from the battlefield. So wouldn't that be a good opportunity for Germany to show that it is the important ally it always wants to be. And to be fair, this is a contested debate at the moment. Some people are talking about limiting the power it can do. Would that be acceptable for Ukraine? So would sending Taros be the opportunity for Germany to show that it is the ally it wants to be? Yes, it will be the perfect opportunity for Germany. Again, it's more about keeping up and not showing leadership. But uh, for Ukraine, given that we are going to enter winter season, that we actually have to uh, destroy uh, Russian log logistics wherever we can reach out to, that will be a, maybe a really important factor. Totally right. And this is right at the center of the question. In Germany here, it has been right at the debate that targets can be hit far away in the distance. If it's technically possible, Ukraine will agree to any kind of uh, contract that will come with Taurus missiles. So I don't think this is a big question. And as we have already seen, the missiles from Great Britain and France, as well as HIMARS from uh, United States, have not been used against uh, targets on the Russian territory in its borders of 1991. So we are following the rules and uh, I think this will continue. That's really interesting. Uh, regardless for now of the rights and wrongs of where Ukraine should be able to target, and don't forget that both Defense Minister Boris Pistorius and Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock have said that uh, Ukraine should be able to hit targets in Russia, where, for example, Russia is launching strikes against civilians against the civilian population of Ukraine from, or where their key logistics hubs are that are supplying their aggressive genocidal war effort in Ukraine. But even putting that outside of the question for the moment, 
very interesting to see that Ukraine would be delighted to welcome Taurus missiles, even if they could only hit targets on Ukrainian territory. And as you said, with the winter coming, it's really important not to give Russia the chance to regroup and to build defenses of the kinds that we've seen it able to do last winter. So perhaps something Germans could do in order to not surrender the winter and not keep us trapped in this cycle of slow combat would be to send Taurus, because that would be the vehicle through which to keep the hopes alive over winter. I think the Ukrainian Air Force will only say thank you <laughs> for this <laughs> missiles. So, all the we could have a fly past of Ukrainian planes saying Danke schön, show <laughs> the uh, the gratitude there. You also in our in our discussions previously, you've mentioned that increasing Western investments in the Ukrainian arms industry are actually a very good way also of getting around some of these objections. Why why is that? Ukraine has already showed its own capabilities in producing long-range weapons. We have quite strong drone industry emerging. We have remade the Neptune uh, system that was used to target ships. Now it's also capable of targeting ground objects. So we would really appreciate assistance from the West in expertise, know-hows and equipment to become stronger in this direction. And with these systems, uh, Ukraine is free to target Russian territory as well and be more effective in getting gains on the battlefield because Russia now understands that Ukraine with this following the rules of providing weapons by the West. Ukraine will not target Russian territory directly, so it gives Russia opportunity to take weapons from there, to take air defense from those areas, and to make an over-concentration of it on really on the battlefield, on the front line. Exactly, and so for all the Western talk of Ukraine should be conducting combined arms warfare, we're actually still forcing Ukraine to fight with one arm tied behind its back. So this is very interesting to hear. There could be a long-term, short-term combination of, in the short term, providing Taurus to get through the winter and providing other systems that would really ensure that Ukraine doesn't lose out and find itself back to square one during the winter, but in the long term, investing in Ukraine's arms industry so that they can produce what they've shown to be very capable of producing, the things that they need to destroy Russia's attack capability. Stepan, Jakuyo, thank you very much for once again coming to talk to us here at DGAP, and we'll be, uh, we keep in touch and follow the Titan vendor together. Uh, thank you very much for having me today. Uh, wishing you all the best, and Slava Ukraine. Royem Slava. That's all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. We've got lots more coming up for you over the course of this season in which we'll explore in depth many of the issues that we've touched on today. Uh, from Germany's key relationships to policy rethinks, whether a Seitenwende is happening or not. And we're very excited to bring it to you here on Berlin Side Out. Uh, until next time, Auf Wiedersehen from Berlin. Uh, we hope you will join us. Tschüss. <laughs>